This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is one that's near and dear to my heart. It's cultural engagement and Christian apologetics. I have two experts in both areas with me, joining me today via Zoom. First guest today is Josh Chartreau, the Director of the Center for Public Christianity and the Resident Theologian at Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. And second guest is somebody who you know well if you listen to the table often. It's Dr. Daryl Bach. Daryl is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor here at Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome, Daryl. My pleasure, Mikhail. Now, what's really cool to me is that you guys have both worked on both apologetics and cultural engagement books, and some of them together. So it's pretty awesome that you've uh, joined us on the show today. Uh, one of the first ones I ever read that you guys did together was this, Truth in a Culture of Doubt. And of course, there's uh, the green one, the uh, Truth Matters as well, which is uh, a similar kind of book. But that kind of got me interested in uh, what, what you're doing, Josh, um, when I saw you were working with Daryl in this area of cultural engagement. Tell us a little bit about the Center for Public Christianity and what that's all about. Yeah, well, the, the kind of heartbeat of the center is actually a fellows program, which is a, um, which is a nine-month program where we work with people typically late 20s, 30s, early 40s who are young professionals in the city here in, here in Raleigh. And they're, it's really a discipleship program for post-Christianity. Hmm. These are folks who are uh, future leaders in the city working, you know, uh, secular jobs in various fields, and then they're trying to kind of put their Christian faith together with that and dealing with cultural issues, dealing with work faith issues. And so it's this nine month kind of CrossFit kind of version of a discipleship program. And then the center is kind of an outgrowth from that where we're really hosting uh, through our alumni. We're at about a hundred now of people who have gone through the program over the last five years we're hosting kind of big public conversations hmm. within the city. We're trying to uh, connect up networks of Christians as well who are, who are trying to do this in different areas. So we're kind of taking their fellows program and then opening the door up to the city and inviting non-Christians as well as Christians into to what we're doing by having speakers and, and conversations on different cultural issues. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, not, not your typical thing that people think about. Um, actually, people have a lot of interesting ideas about what cultural engagement is. Uh, all three of us work in cultural engagement, but I'm really interested to hear how you would explain what cultural engagement is to someone who asks you. What is that, Josh? Yeah, well, yeah, a lot of my, a lot, I don't know if you guys have had this. I've had the experience where a lot of my colleagues and friends 
don't actually like the terminology too much. So I, so I have to do this quite a bit. It's mm-hmm. almost I have to give an apologetic for that terminology. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, and maybe I'll start with what sometimes people ask me is, you know, hey, Josh, culture is kind of like the air. So what does it mean to engage the culture? I mean, what is the thing engaging the air we're all breathing? Mm-hmm. And I can understand, I can understand that kind of critique and that kind of question what, what I say is, first, we need to understand what culture is. And culture, I would I define it in, in, in kind of with three levels. One is, you know, within culture, people have worldviews, things that they articulate within particular cultures. On the other hand, culture can work kind of like air, which is it's culture gives us a kind of framework that we don't normally think about. It's not ideas we've articulated as much as we just take for granted. It seems like common sense. But then this third component of culture are institutions and artifacts, the things we make, the kind of material parts of culture. Um, and, and so when, when I'm talking about cultural engagement, I'm talking about thinking through these different areas, the ideas, the artifacts, the institutions that make up culture, the worldviews that make up a culture. And just like a missionary would when when we send missionaries out to, to you know foreign places we say go understand the culture as, as paul did in athens so you can speak to it and interact with people I, we have to do the same thing especially as culture is shifting in uh in america and so it's understanding these three different dimensions and then being able to speak the gospel and then speak from a christian um understanding of different issues in light of where the culture is. Daryl, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how would you explain what cultural engagement is, maybe with more of an emphasis on the engagement part? What's it mean to engage? Well, let's, I'm not going to leave the culture part because part of the challenge here is, is that culture as a singular is probably a misnomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we have are cultures. We have a co- combination of cultures. We have different worldviews. We have different institutions that represent different positions. Um, and so the idea that our culture is, is singular is actually a little bit misleading. It's, it's a diversity that we're dealing with. It's pluralism that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about cultural engagement, you're talking about engaging these variety of cultural perspectives that are differently framed and being aware of how to move with alacrity with skill between them as you move. And then you've got the institutional dimensions that Josh mentioned, as well as the, just the, the framing, the air of what culture is that is moving and shifting in terms of what's being emphasized, what's, what's highlighted, uh, how things have changed, that kind of thing, which has undertaken such an accelerated movement in a variety of levels and layers um, that the church has been challenged. It's gone from being, uh, this is Dwayne Lipfin, former president of Wheaton College's expression. You know, the church has gone from being the home team in America to being, and this is a biblical image now, in exile or being, being less than central, more marginalized. Mm-hmm. So how do you cope with that? And then you've got the whole shift in worldviews between a predominantly Judeo-Christian backdrop vis-a-vis the more often secularized and non-theological approaches to life 
that are surrounding us? How do you make those moves? And so engagement is simply being aware of how I compare cultural engagement to plate tectonics. Okay. On geography, you know, how you have plate tectonics and they rub against each other and eventually they build up friction. You get earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, cultural engagement is, is in, being aware of the, the tensions that the plate tectonics of life are throwing at us because of these different combinations of views that are surround, surrounding us because they are who, who our neighbors are and where they're coming from. And engagement is simply the ability to be aware of that, to stay abreast of that, and to know how to address that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've used the, uh, the illustration of, of reading and reacting before, a sports metaphor. Uh, explain how, how we need to be able to read and react in terms of some of these, these hot-button issues. Well, this will be fun for Josh because he's a soccer player, so I know he'll get this, although it's a football metaphor primarily. But reading and reacting is knowing, on the one hand, I'll use football as an example. You know, when you have a football play, it's drawn up in a certain way. You know that the guard's going to pull, and if you're the running back, you're waiting for the, for the break to come to spot the hole to go through. But when the play actually happens, you aren't going to run it the way it's drawn on the board. You're going to read and react to what's happening in front of you, and then you're going to respond based upon what's taking place. And so the ability of engagement is the ability to read and react. It's the ability to understand what's in front of you and then know how to respond to it, how to engage with it. And in particular, in cultural engagement, what's very important as a first step is the ability to listen, the ability to hear, the ability to sense what's going on around you. That's the reading part. And then the reaction has to do not just with what you bring in terms of content, but the tone with which you respond. All those things are important in engagement. So engagement is a very challenging thing and it's become more challenging. The less monolithic our culture has become as we become more aware globally of what's going on, as we're connected globally, as we, I like to say the world is bigger and smaller simultaneously. You know, we are aware of more people and there are more people here and there are more views out there, but we're also more tightly connected to those views than we used to be all of that impacts the way in which we engage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm part of a number of uh, podcast groups now outside the Christian community. And when I explain what we do on the show, I say, you know, those places, those, those things that you're not supposed to talk about at parties, like politics and religion and stuff like that. Yeah, we go there. And uh, that kind of helps people understand uh, what we're doing. And they, many of them are intrigued by it. Like, really? And you guys are Christians and, and you're, you're engaging in this way, um, especially since a lot of people feel like Christians um, don't understand them, and uh, they wish Christians would uh, try to take a step back and understand them before engaging. Um, when, when the Truth Matters book came out, Daryl, I like how you used to say, truth matters, but tone matters too. Mm-hmm. That was cool. Um, Josh's latest book, Telling a Better Story, How to Talk About God in a Skeptical Age, talks about this inside-out kind of approach. Josh, could you explain that to us? What's this inside-out kind of approach to doing uh, apologetics and cultural engagement? Yeah, well, if I can, and this is going to be on the fly, but since we're using uh, sports analogies, I might try to work one in here. Daryl, just try to match you. Uh, is um, Yeah, so one of the things I saw in evangelism is that it was like we were we were playing soccer games, but we were expecting – to to um when a soccer game right 
you blow the whistle and the coach is over there and he's not really doing too much, right? In football, the coach, you huddle up, you give plays. And I think uh, our evangelism was kind of working with here's the play um, football when we're actually playing a soccer game, which means you need to know what you're doing, but if you're just going to try to run off a place, you know, play sheet, if you're expecting the call to the coach just to kind of give you a track and that's going to work in a 21st century kind of post-Christianity, it's not going to go too well. And yet at the same time, people need to learn a kind of way to approach these evangelistic conversations. So we need apologetics, but a kind of five steps to go from truth to the resurrection oftentimes doesn't actually play out because you know, one of the challenges is, as we've been alluding to, or Daryl's alluded to, is that it's not just that people don't think Christianity is true or irrational. That is still part of the problem. But the other part now is that they don't think it's good or beautiful. So then how do we approach this knowing we can't just go, here are five arguments that, you know, proves Christianity and then we can walk away. Um First of all, I don't think that's how arguments actually even work. I don't think it's going to give us a kind of a course of 100% proof anyway. But what it means is how do we talk to someone who's coming from, as Daryl again has mentioned, very different framework. We're in a pluralistic society. So to start with stepping inside their story, asking them questions, hey, tell me your story is a great place to start. And if you listen closely you will hear things and ask good questions like where they're getting meaning, where they're getting their value, what they're living for, what their moral code is. In other words, I think these are some of the core things of what it means to be human. And so we learn to talk to people about what it means to be human by asking them questions and entering their story. As we do that, what often comes out is you hear some things that we can begin to dig deeper in and ask questions on. And it, because I think you're going to hear things that are, on one hand, you will need to eventually challenge, but you'll also hear some aspirations that you can affirm. <laughs> you can say, yes, that's good. You're, you're, you want justice in the world. That's a good thing. And yet, are we going to get it in the way you're going about it? Or yes, that's mm-hmm. good that you value relationships, but have you adopted a kind of worldview that actually will undermine flourishing uh, relationships? And then, and then to be able to transition in conversations to say, this is how the gospel, this is how Christianity makes sense of that. This is how the Christian story. So we're taking them from we're going from inside their, their story mm-hmm. to Christianity and saying, this is how Christianity actually leads to true humanity, to true flourishing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a way that says, hey, yes, we do need to challenge, but are there opportunities here where we can say, you know what, Christianity is actually what you're after. You're just going about it in all the wrong ways. You're going about life in the wrong ways. It's a kind of Augustinian kind of approach where Augustine famously said, you know, we all have these restless hearts and we're searching for God, but we're searching in the wrong places. And so I'm wanting to pick up on these kind of existential things that people feel in order to get to hopefully 
the more traditional apologetics, yes. But I, I'm wanting to I'm wanting to use inside out to deal with the questions of goodness and beauty, and then kind of come on the back door on the kind of cases for the resurrection and other things. Now, sometimes you don't have to do that. You can go straight to making a case for the resurrection, and that's fine too. I'm very practical. If you can do that, if they're if they're ready to listen, go for it. But I often find find that in a post Christian society, we have to start further back. Mm-hmm. Let me let me let me introduce an analogy. You know how when you learn a foreign language, you know you go into the chapter and they get here's the dialogue, okay? And so here's how you know here's how you order a hamburger in Spanish or French or <laughs> German, whatever language you're. Okay, so you so you you know have taken the class and you walk in and you're very very confident about what you're going to do because you've got all the vocabulary in there. You walk into the restaurant, you ask the first question, which is exactly how your dialogue began. And then you get a response, and the response isn't it wasn't in your dialogue. The, the, the response is something else, and you're on your own. You know, you're on your own in the language. Okay, that's cultural engagement. Uh, cultural engagement is you you build with your apologetics, et cetera, a toolbox of things that you're aware of and that you you've learned, and that is a certain way to respond. But in the actual conversation, it very rarely goes in the way and in the sequence in which you learned it. And, and, and so you have to be flexible in dealing with that. And you've got another obstacle, which Josh has already alluded to, but let me develop it a little more. And that is, um, you know, if you're in a seminary or you're in a church or you're in a small group, the theology is at the center of what you do. It's at the center of your worldview. It's the center of how you think. The moment you get in your car and drive away from the church or your small group or your seminary and you go out into the world, you're going to be interacting with people for whom theology may not even be a category. Mm-hmm. It, may, it, may, it may be nothing. There may be nothing there. What is yeah. your theology? I don't have a theology. You know. So how do you have a conversation with someone whose, world, whose starting place, whose worldview is so differently oriented than your own? And how do you bring them into a world that they don't even occupy, or at least they think they don't even occupy? Mm-hmm. That's a challenge of cultural engagement. And so learning how to build that bridge. Now, there are two ways to build that bridge. I can build that bridge by insisting that there is a theological world that they need to come into. Or I can build that bridge by starting with wherever they're starting from and then working to build those pieces back into a theology. That's what Josh is talking about in Inside Out. You start with where the person is coming from, what their aspirations are, how they see the world, et cetera. And then you take your worldview as kind of a template against that. And, and you look for those things that allow them to step towards a theological world and a way of theologically thinking and, and introduce those as kind of moments for pause for their reflection. And that's underneath what's happening in the conversations you're having as you engage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very true. I, I think there's a, oh, go ahead, Josh. I was just going to add, and for, for some who might be listening and think, well, hang on, why, you know, why would we, are we, are we giving up the game by starting where they're at? I think that, that could be an objection to what, mm-hmm. what you hear me and Daryl saying, are we giving up mm-hmm. the game? And I would say certainly not. We're, we always have to start somewhere with somebody. And, and for, for, for me, as I'm thinking about this, we have to have this deep and rich theology rooted in the gospel that we're, that's our framework. 
that's the center of this. And yet when we're talking to somebody, I think that that same gospel drives us to step into their world and say, how do we make these connections? So it's actually, we're, the, the gospel is the center of this. And yet certainly when we're talking to someone, we, we've got to step into their world. You've got to start somewhere. And so we're looking for places to start, um, which, which is different than saying, hey, we're just going to, we're going to end where they're at, or we're just going to, we're just trying to make this more palatable. That, that's not it at all, but we're trying to get them to understand. And, um, and, and that means we've got to, we've got to at least in, in the conversation, step into their world uh, in, in order to be able to communicate. Mm-hmm. So let me make let me make a contrast in the book of Acts with how this works, because I think you can see it pretty vividly. If you go to the speech that Peter makes in Acts 2, he's dealing with a Jewish audience. They know the Bible. They know the promises of God. It's literally littered with scriptural references. I mean, the whole speech in Acts 2 is one scriptural reference after another. It's built around four Old, four Old Testament Hebrew scripture texts. Okay. Come to the Areopagus. Come to Mars Hill where the audience doesn't know schmatz about the Bible. Now, schmatz is a technical term, okay? <laughs> it, it means they don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know Genesis from Malachi. They don't know anything about the promise of God. And what happens there? Well, he takes them, he tells them a storyline that's based upon how they are worshiping. And when it comes to the crucial point to make his theological transition, he doesn't cite a Bible verse, he cites one of their own poets and he makes his move into the theological world through, through an aspiration and an expression that comes out of their own culture. I think that contrast teaches us a lot about how to approach people in their background. If they're aware of the scripture, you're having one kind of conversation, but if they're not aware of the scripture, you're having another kind of conversation, but both conversations are very much in touch with where the audience is coming from as they engage and, and developing that ability, which means that it's not one size fits all that you, there is going to be variation in how you handle the approach is really the key to developing wisdom in engagement, you know, developing what we have called on the center cultural intelligence, not just cultural in, engagement, but actually doing it intelligent, intelligently with discernment and judgment about how to go and when to make your move, you know, and go back to the sports metaphor, when, to, when you see the hole and cut up field. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Daryl has a book called Cultural in- Intelligence as well, which uh, we'll link to in the show notes, which you can check out as well. I was going to say earlier, Josh, that I think for, for us who are like seminary trained type people, maybe what really grabbed a hold of us was something theological, was something philosophical, say for you, a, a classical argument for, for the existence of God moving from from, you know, the Kalam argument all the way up to uh, the moral argument and then the resurrection, that just really resonated with you. But like Daryl was saying, for most people, that's not where they're at. And so it's almost the idea of loving our neighbors, looking out for the needs of others before your own, saying, you know, as missionaries, if we were going to be missionaries, like you were saying, Josh, we would, we would be thinking like that. It's just natural to be training people in intercultural studies to think, um, how would you engage with someone who's not like you? Um, and yet sometimes we tend to forget that when we're at home, so to speak. Um, one of the things we talk about at the center too, that the Daryl has mentioned is, is the challenge of turning your truth meter down, not off, but down so that when somebody says something that's 
uh, different than what you believe. You don't feel like, well, now I have to defend the entire contents of the whole Christian worldview because somebody disagrees with something I believe. Um, but we can actually hold it, save it, and then be good listeners. A great example of this, Daryl, I think is what we did on the show with the whole world religion series, where you had a series of three questions that you asked people. Tell us a little bit about that and how that cultural engagement looks in terms of world religious uh, conversation. Well, again, it's an illustration of trying to start where the person's coming from. Let me tell you where the origins of these questions came from. I was in Chiang Mai in Thailand. We were doing a tour of the town and we had a day off. And, and when you walk through that town, it's full of Buddhist temples. I knew next to nothing about Buddhism. And so I'm walking in these temples and I'm watching people engage in their worship. And all of a sudden the idea hit me. I wonder what these people think they're doing. And I wonder why they're attracted to this. It was just, it was a straight question of curiosity. And, uh, and so when I came back, I said, let's do a series on world religions, but let's not do it the way it's normally done, which is to take, here's what the Bible says about religion and God. And here's, you know, what this religion says about religion and God. That's valuable. I'm not undercutting that. That's a very valuable step. I said, let's go at this a different way. Let's ask three questions. The first is, what does this religion believe? Is it even a religion? Because in some cases we were dealing with Eastern philosophies that aren't really religion, although they tend to have a religious devotional element to them. Okay, so what do they believe? And then secondly, what's the Velcro factor? What I call the Velcro. What makes someone attracted to this? What do they think they get out? What is it that they believe it gives them that makes them dedicate their life to it? And this is something more than I was born in the part of the world where this religion appears. No, this is what caused them to adhere. adhere. What's the Velcro factor? And the third question is, how does the gospel speak to that Velcro factor? How does the gospel speak into the spiritual space that they're already occupying? And what does it have to say about it? And that's where the contents that we didn't pursue tend to come into the conversation. But pursuing those three questions means that you're trying to understand how, what someone else's spiritual makeup is, what their spiritual GPS is. I call it getting a spiritual GPS reading on someone. And, and if you'll understand that, then you know how to speak into that space. And so a lot of what Josh is doing in his writing is helping us understand how and where that person is coming from, what their spiritual story is. He's what he's calling their spiritual story. I'm calling a spiritual GPS reading. We're pursuing the same thing fundamentally. And, and when you do that, you're looking for, it's really important in listening to make this distinction, which Christians sometimes confuse, which is it's one thing to make an effort to understand someone, and in your effort to understand someone and have some level of empathy in that understanding, that is not the same as agreeing with them. Mm -hmm. We often mix the two. Mm -hmm. Okay. When we mix the two, we get into trouble because I really can't assess where someone is until I understand where they are coming from. This is why listening is so important. And so uh, a, a style of engagement that has listening as a very important core component is fundamental to doing a good job of engaging when you've got the variety of worldviews that we are coping with in, the, in, in a post-Christian and in a post-modern world. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson. 
publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Well, yeah, there's so many places we can we can go with that. Uh, you know, these these places where we do try to engage, uh, these are hot button issues where people are just afraid to go just because they're afraid it's going to blow up. Uh, what are some principles that can guide us in engaging in some of these hot button issues? And, and you know, Josh, if you could just maybe pick one. Um, here's an area where Christians are typically afraid to engage or they, they've tried and it's just it's just blown up and, and they don't know what to do. Um, what's one of those areas and, and what are some of the tips you would give someone um, as they walk into engagement? Yeah, well, obviously the one that's been, that's been huge recently is, and has been, a, has been an issue for a long time, but has become more tense in the last six months has been race. Um, mm. And, um, and so there's a variety of reasons you know, that we're not very good at talking for, for the most part, the white evangelical church hasn't been very good about talking about this. Um, and right now part of the issue is we are, um, we want to label things so we don't have to think about it. <laughs> so instead of listening, well, we can create a label. We can cast them off as, you know, not Christian because they are, you know, X, Y, or Z. And then we don't have to listen and, and maybe, do some evaluating and self-evaluation. I think some principles is number one is treat other people how you want to be treated. You know, I mean, we, we typically don't like to be labeled. Um, we typically want people to hear us out when we speak. And, um, and yet we oftentimes aren't very good about doing the same to others. Uh, I would, uh, I, I suggest to my fellows that, I'm borrowing this from Alan Jacobs uh, at Baylor uh, over there near, near, near you guys, but he, he calls it the five minute rule, which he says, you know, give it five minutes. And I think that's a, a good principle. Like before you, it, it, he, he makes the argument that if you are really smart, you're going to have a lot of trouble with what me and Daryl are talking about. <laughs> because what happens is when someone's talking, you're all, if you're, if you're really smart, what happens is you're already thinking five reasons they're wrong and why my view that I've always had, or, or I'm at least coming into this conversation with is right. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you shut down and you're just in kind of self-protection mode. And so if you can give it five minutes and know that you were prone to do that, you might just learn something. Hmm. And you might actually find out that you are right or you, you haven't changed your mind and be more persuasive in the end to this person you're talking to, because at least you, you understand them and haven't written them off and assumed, Oh, I've heard this argument before. So I, I think the five minute rule is a pretty good rule. Some of us might need 10 minutes. I, I probably need 10 minutes, but um, 
but just a five minute rule. I think another, another rule is before you post it, before you go public, talk to somebody who is fair minded, who, who is likely not to agree with you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know anybody like that, go spend your time finding people out finding a community or other people out like that before you post something. Because if you don't know people like that, you're probably just posting it to your own crowd. Right. Um, and they're going to affirm you and you'll get likes and you'll feel better about yourself, but you're not really persuading anyway. So, so why don't you go before you post it and run it by somebody else and, and see what they think. I think that's a good rule. And then, cultivate those types of relationships so that you actually have people who disagree with you that you can run things by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I was a communication major as an undergrad in college. And the more I work in cultural engagement, the more I think, you know what, we're communication coaches in some way. Uh, Just the idea of listening to somebody so that you're not formulating your, your rebuttal while they're talking, but you can actually listen to understand, which is a huge huge thing um, to teach people just because we've forgotten how to do that. Um, and then you bring the whole social media aspect to this by talking about posting. Um, it's, it's so, uh, it's a knee jerk reaction that so many of us have to, to um, post things. And, and sometimes you see people just like totally ripping on other people and they don't even know them and where they're coming from um, in social media, but that's kind of the world that's, that's that we've seen uh, recently. Again, so many places we can go with this um can just, i can i add, can yeah, I add something because i yeah, think yeah. i think there's besides the five minute rule which is a great idea um here's another test i tell people it's pretty easy to determine instantly whether you're what i call a rebutter or a listener and that is um what are you doing while someone's talking to you are you formulating that rebuttal okay this is where the turning the doctrinal meter down comes in Okay, that's not going away. You're going to be thinking while you're hearing, I'm not sure I agree with that, and here's why. But here's the test. The test is, are you able, after someone has, after you've taken your five minutes and you've listened, okay, or Josh's case, 10, okay, and you've listened, um, are you able to reformulate what has been said to you in different words, but in such a way that the person who said it to you can say, yeah, you heard what I was saying. Okay. That is the pursuit of understanding. Okay. Remember understanding is not necessarily agreement. That's just saying you heard what I said to you. And I want you to notice what goes on in the dynamic. You're actually engaged in a conversation when you do that. When you rebut, you're not engaged in a conversation. You think you're engaged in a conversation, but you're actually not engaged in a conversation. You're only interested in getting your point across. Okay, that's actually not a conversation. So, so what you want to do is you want to be able to mesh the assessment skills, which come to you naturally, and the um, conversational skills, which will actually advance a conversation and give a chance when you show the respect of someone of communicating to them, I'm working very hard to listen and to try and understand you. You open the door for them to do the same to you. You lead by example. And so it changes the dynamic of the conversation when the pursuit isn't simply 
well, I want you to agree with me, but rather the pursuit is I want us to make an effort to understand one another. Two completely different ways to pursue a conversation. And, and then once you get everything on the table that you have, have achieved an understanding about where each of you is coming from, mm-hmm. you're actually in a much better position to assess the yep. nature of the differences that you have. And again, you have a conversation, but now you've had it in a, in a sequentially, how can I say this, functional way that actually gives the opportunity not just for you to dig in, but actually perhaps even to learn some things in the process, which are helpful to you. Things that may help you understand how to make your own argument, as well as things that you need to understand because you had blind spots. Because the other thing that we all need to realize as we enter conversations is none of us has the gift of omniscience. So there are things for us to learn in the conversation mm-hmm. when we have them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Like uh, my head is just spinning with all kinds of different ways we could, we could go with this. You know, when I was first introduced to what we we're doing at the center, Daryl, uh, in 2012, you just started this, this podcast and, uh, there was a concern that we would run out of topics, if you remember that. Um, but as you've seen, uh, people who have been listening for the past eight years now, um, there's a lot of places where we, we can still be engaging and helping people uh, learn how to engage. One of the troubles that people have, especially those who are trained in theology and apologetics, is we're trained often to respond to objections. Someone says, there's no evidence for God, or how could there be a God when there's so much evil in the world? We can respond to that because there's an objection. But if someone's objection is, I don't really know what Christianity is all about. I just don't like it for some reason. We don't know where to go with that unless we what? Unless we listen, unless we draw them out, unless we, we engage in that, uh, that conversation, not a debate, right? And so uh, another question to throw out to, to both of you guys in terms of apologetics is, is it helpful to see apologetics as a one little area underneath this umbrella of cultural engagement? Is it, it a subsection, kind of like it's a subsection of, of theology? What, what would you say to that, Josh? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, I think, well, I, the way I, I see apologetics as a culminating discipline. <laughs> well, that, that's the way I put it. And, and, and what I mean by that is it really... Um, incorporates, it's kind of like preaching in that in preaching, you're taking church history and exegesis and theology and philosophy. I mean, preaching, well, goodness gracious, is so, such a challenge. Um, but I do think I, but it has this practical, like, hey, you got, you know, in the church I'm at now, because it's Anglican right now, it's 25 minutes, right? They don't mm-hmm. even give you the 40 minute Baptist. Mm-hmm. They give you 25 minutes. Here you go. And I, and I think apologetics is it's very similar because you need to have church history, you need to have philosophy, you need to understand sociology and culture, you need to have a working anthropology, how, do, how are people persuaded? Uh, so much of that that goes into preaching as well, except you can't script it out. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it's not, you know, you can't have a manuscript in your hand. And so I view it as a culminating discipline that certainly needs to include cultural analysis. Um, and, um, and so that's not a neat answer of maybe of how it, how it relates to um, cultural engagement. I will say this in, in certain ways, I'll be, I'll throw this out there and then you guys can 
tell me I'm wrong, but in certain ways, I think all apologetics is cultural apologetics. And what I mean by that is I'm always, I'm never talking to someone in the abstract. Mm -hmm. I'm never talking to someone in the abstract. I'm always talking to someone with particular objections, who's part of a particular culture, who has a narrative and a backstory that is, that is embedded in a particular time. Mm -hmm. I'm talking to either a a non-Christian Buddhist or a non-Christian new atheist or so it's, there's always we're cultural beings. And so that, that, that is inescapably part of apologetics. And so there's been some kind of, you know, lots of discussion on this thing called cultural apologetics, but I'm wanting to say really all of apologetics is cultural apologetics in that sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point, too, about there's no cookie-cutter way to approach someone. And you see this a lot in world religion where people say, okay, I just read the textbook on how to engage with Muslims, and I meet a Muslim person or I meet a Buddhist person, right? But, I mean, how many different versions of Buddhism are there is, like, dependent on how many people you meet pretty much, right? So I'm not engaging with a Buddhist. I'm engaging with my friend, Liam, my friend. We're we're back to my foreign language illustration. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically. I mean, if you think about the foreign, apologetics, at least the way it's normally taught is, it's by chapters and topics. Here's the list of facts that go under whatever topic I'm looking at that you need to be aware of and realize. You know, here here are the four arguments for the existence of God. Here are the three reasons why the resurrection is true, et cetera. You know, it's a nice cookie cutter list. But when you get in the conversation, it doesn't work that way. It mm-hmm. just doesn't. So it's, so apologize. You think of apologetics on the one hand as it's as the content, which is kind of what your, your question sort of presupposes, I guess. But then there's the whole other element about what, how, how apologetics functions. Apologetics functions like a toolkit that you have in the background. And then depending on, on the problem that you have, I'm going to use a car, car analogy not that i fix cars on a regular basis but you're trying to fix a car you know and you've got a particular you got you know your 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 um you know your oil needs changing or whatever well okay then i know i'm going to need a certain kind of tool in order to deal with that particular circumstance that i'm faced with and if i've got a problem you know getting um getting the lug nuts to work or whatever it is that I'm trying to work with my wrench. And I got to think about what all plan B is, you know, that kind of thing. So you're always, and I'm back to another image. You're always reading and reacting to what's going on around you. And as you read and react, which is, which is an expression of cultural awareness and cultural sensitivity. And the deeper your cultural awareness and sensitivity is the more maneuverability you give yourself, you know how to draw into that toolkit for the particular set of combinations of things that need to be said at that particular moment, at that particular time Uh with that particular person. Um, And that's a skill that just takes time, just like learning a language. You know, when it goes off script, you've got to have enough in that toolbox to know how to adjust. Uh, Apologetics works the same way. So I don't know what umbrella belongs under. I just (laughs) know it's there. Yeah. Okay. And I need to be able to draw on it. So, and I would just add to that, to, to use that tool analogy, I think what sometimes happens is it, you can get trained in seminary by someone with a specialty. Um, in other words, they learned, how to, they learned how to swing a hammer. And so then everything looks like a nail. That's right. So everything, or, well, that, that hammer really worked good for me. You, 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 Mikhail, mm-hmm. you referenced this before. That's, that argument really helped me 
And so I'm going to use it on everyone. And mm -hmm. so every, every issue becomes a nail and this is how we approach it. And that's, and, and seeing, I was using the kind of language of cultural apologetics is, but using the kind of recognizing, no, I actually need all of these tools. So it's mm -hmm. not a, it's I'm, by, by making that proposal, I'm not saying, um, you know, the classical arguments can't be useful. I'm saying those are, those are, those are tools that we can have in our box, but learning, learning, um, learning how, when to pull out which tool is, a, mm -hmm. is you have to have apologetic virtue. You have to be the right type of person. You have to have wisdom. Hmm. And that's why we can't just say, learn these five, learn Aquinas's five proofs, and there you go. Because, um, because then you're just repeating those proofs that, by the way, weren't formula, you know, you know, might not play as well to somebody on the street who isn't working with the same, who doesn't, you know, know what, you know, the cosmological argument is or or these different kind of mm -hmm. things or even care mm -hmm. so then can't how do you, spell how do you ontology <laughs> i can't even spell the word ontology <laughs> i mean yeah it's, it's a little it's a little bit like taking a you ever tried to do a phillips screwdriver when you have a normal screw it doesn't work <laughs> you know it just it, it, if you if you use the wrong tool for the situation that's in front of you it doesn't take you anywhere mm -hmm. and so it, that's the, there's a relational element. What we're saying, probably the most important thing we've been saying all the way through this time, there's a relational element to engagement that you cannot do away with. It's at the center of being effective. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you approach these conversations without thinking about that relational dimension, you will almost surely misstep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to say that our apologetic engagement, these arguments aren't heard in a vacuum. They're not just like an argument sitting there in, in a book. They're, they're coming from you. And so they're wrapped up in this wrapper of your life and who you are. Mm -hmm. And how do we engage with people? How do they see us? Do we and you're trying for... to build a bridge to the other person who may or may not appreciate everything that you're bringing while you're saying it. And mm -hmm. so if you haven't built some level of just interpersonal credibility, for example. I mean, we haven't even talked about that. You know, the ability where they will trust you. I'm, the thing I often say in dealing with apologetics is, if people don't know you care, they won't care about your critique. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's just something well, as simple as that. Yeah. So there are relational um, bridges that have to be built. So the person will take on a suggestion. Here, have you thought about this? Well, if you haven't built a relationship, why should I think about that coming from you? I don't even know you from Adam. Mm -hmm. And I don't sense you care about me. All you care about is making your point. You know, uh, how's that going to be effective? It isn't. Yeah. 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 yeah which, which ties into, again, these evangelistic or apologetic conversations are now tied into uh, a bigger milieu of, well, to, just to say it, culture war mentality where it's an us versus them mentality. So I think cultural engagement going wrong is us versus you, culture war. And then, and then we're coming along and saying, oh, yeah, but let me give you the gospel and let me tell you why you should believe this Jesus guy. There's a huge disconnect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with that. And I think that's why 
the cultural issues that you guys are discussing on the show and that we're, we're engaging with at the center here in Raleigh are relevant also to the evangel- evangelistic issue. If we don't care about the oppressed and the downtrodden and the mm-hmm. poor in our community, then we're going to lose some a lot of credibility to saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus who cares for you. There, yeah. There's going to be a disconnect. So there, there is a kind of, you know, as, as you just said, Mikhail, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. These conversations don't happen in a vacuum. And it's why we, you know, we have to be as the church, a hospital for sinners and, um, and, and care for our communities. Yeah. You know, Josh, you mentioned earlier, race is a sensitive area and a series of passages. I like to draw people's attention to, uh, they're in Isaiah one, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 58, Amos five, Micah six. I can go to the sermon on the Mount. They all say basically the same thing, which is God saying to his people, if you do not care about justice, I don't care about your worship. Which tells me that that caring about justice is a pretty important category. And then I like to point out, all those texts were written long before there was red, blue, or a guy named Marx. Okay? And so, you know, coming centuries before that. Now, obviously, we've got to get into a definition of what justice is and how the Bible sees it and all those kinds of questions. But the idea that we care about people made in the image of God, regardless of their nation, regardless of their race, because they're made in the image of God, if we root our theology in Genesis 1, we are in the conversation that is a race conversation. And we've actually been there since, where does Genesis 1 begin? In the beginning. Hmm. Okay, so um, so that that automatically should open a door that should say to Christians, this is something I should be aware of and sensitive to and open about. And then and then you start your conversations from there. Mm -hmm. Well, our time is rapidly coming to an end. Josh, I want to just ask you one last question about uh, what you do in uh, the center. Um, you have pastoral side uh, experience, and then also the, and the academic side. How can you? How do you see churches and ministry leaders being able to uh, equip Christians better to think about cultural engagement and apologetics? What advice would you give? Yeah, and, and just so I'm understanding the question, you're saying as far as for particularly for leaders as they're yeah. thinking through this. Yeah. How can we help our people with this? Yeah. What what, what I tell leaders is don't see apologetics and cultural engagement as this other thing over here, but tie it into spiritual formation. And, and what I mean by that is we, um, at the heart of what's going on is for, for, for all of us, we're swimming in this thing called culture and culture has certain narratives that are shaping and forming us and certain practices that are shaping and forming us. And they're forming us, um, if it's not the the gospel narrative, it's forming us in ways that go away from God. You know, whether it's achievement culture, meritocracy, or or if it's uh, consumerism, or it's sex, and you know these things that aren't in and of themselves bad, but when they're made ultimate, and we get on the narrative that hey, these things are going to ultimately satisfy me, then then even as Christians, these things become God, and and they have all these. It impacts us and our spiritual formation. And so what, what I tell leaders is you need 
to not just teach people that spiritual formation is about, you know, following a bunch of rules, but, but about who we're worshiping and seeing how these other kind of narratives and, and gods aren't going to deliver and make sure they see that. And they see that in a myriad of ways in culture and how they buy into that. And once we do that, once we teach spiritual uh, formation in this way, then we're already, we're already are halfway there. And in many ways, we're all the way there of them being able to turn to the city now and say, oh my goodness, the same thing's going on with my neighbors. <laughs> you know, it, it's not just that Christians are buying, obviously buying into these false narratives and these false gods. It's, it's what our neighbors are doing too. And it's, and it's, mm -hmm. and, and so being able to do that to kind of deconstruct, you know, and be self-critical is both going to make us humble as we go to our neighbors. And also we've wrestled through these things ourselves. We've seen the dead ends and we're going to be able to talk to them about those mm -hmm. dead ends. So I actually see these things as something we need to tackle together not attack on like mm -hmm. hey grow with the lord and then yeah. and then go talk to other people about jesus but seeing actually you're going to be equipped to to change how people actually change is also you know how we change is how other people change the gospels for everybody so that's that's how i kind of the vision i want uh leaders to have for how to mm -hmm. approach this yeah the humility piece is so important that takes it away from this culture war of let's let's fight everyone to we're in a spiritual battle actually and our our enemies are not other people and we demolish arguments when we get around to that but not other people um daryl i'm going to give you the last word on this uh, how can how can uh churches help people better think about apologetics and cultural engagement well i think they um first step is they need to teach them how to be good listeners and how to listen and hear things that they may not be comfortable hearing and, and then how to respond. So, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is this relational dimension of what we're dealing with. There, there's content for sure. And there's plenty of content out there for people to get their hands around and get their minds around. That's not a problem. The place where the church struggles is how to relationally handle that material in a context in which people don't have the categories that we are arguing are very important to possess in order to understand what, what it is that's being said. And so the ability to build those bridges, teaching how to build those bridges and how to think through that and, and how to engage, not wall yourself off from hearing that stuff or thinking about it, but actually learning how to engage it is a very, very important step. And, uh, and it's challenging because it's uncomfortable for people. And, um, and one thing people don't like is to be uncomfortable. But unfortunately, um, part of the calling is, you know, I, I like to say the Great Commission is not going to the church and make disciples. The Great Commission is going to the world and make disciples. And so the, it is part of our most fundamental call as people of God to be engaged with those around us who don't agree with us and who, and who need what we're offering. Uh, and our belief, our deeply held belief is, is that if they will embrace what it is that's being offered, God will do a work in their life that's really make their life uh, infinitely better. We can never mm -hmm. forget that. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Daryl. And thank you, Josh, for being on the show as well. You bet. 
Uh, Daryl and I authored a series of articles on dialogical apologetics and difficult spiritual conversations in Bibliotheca Sacra. We'll link to those in the uh, show notes as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us today on the Table Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe to the show if you found this helpful, and we hope to see you again next time here on the Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.